I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Emily Urquhart joins me again. She has a new book of essays, Ordinary Wonder Tales. It's a highly readable, fascinating collection of pieces that touch on a number of subjects like death and dying, radioactivity, plague, grief, pregnancy, prenatal genetics, trauma, as well as family, her father's dementia, as well as family history. The pieces are thoughtful and provoke thoughts from the reader. They're also enriching. Uh, the book is captivating as, uh, and, as one critic has said, spellbinding. I'll ask Emily about some of the pieces in the book, uh, when she wrote them, and whatever wisdom she's uh, gleaned from her experiences and the experience of writing about herself and those around her. Emily Urquhart is a journalist with a doctorate from Memorial uh, University of uh, Newfoundland in uh, folklore. Her work has appeared in a number of publications, including Longreads, Guernica, and The Walrus. She first appeared on the program in 2015 when her book Beyond the Pale Folklore Family and the Mystery of Our Hidden Genes was published. That book was a finalist for the uh, BC National Award for Canadian Nonfiction and shortlisted for the Kobo First Book Prize. Her most recent book, The Age of uh, Creativity, Art, Memory, My Father and Me, was a top book of 2020 by the CBC, Now Magazine, and Quill and Choir. She is a nonfiction editor for the New Quarterly and uh, joined me from her home in Kitchener, Ontario. The website for more is at emilyurquhart.com, and this book is published by Biblioasis. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Emily Urquhart. Uh, Ms. Urquhart, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Nice to be chatting with you today. Nice to talk to you. Um, it, it, it's such a captivating collection of essays. Did, did you write these essays with an eye that they'd appear in a collection like this, or, or, or were they, say, written in isolation of one another? I I didn't write them thinking... I didn't write the very first one thinking it was a collection, uh-huh. but after writing the first one, I knew I wanted to write more essays like that one. And the first one I wrote was um, the essay Giving Up the Ghost uh, about having post-bereavement hallucinations yeah, after yeah. My, my brother died. Uh-huh. And um, I, at the time, was working as the writer-in-residence at, at Wilfrid Laurier University, and it gave me the time and space to sit in a place that also had a great library and gave me access to the library. And um, I was able, to, and I had an income via this, uh, residency, and so I was able to write what I wanted to, the kind of nonfiction I wanted to write, rather than trying to sort of shape it and pitch it to a magazine, which wouldn't, you know, which I also enjoy doing, but I didn't really want um, that intrusion. I wanted to just go out on my own and let curiosity be my guide and see what I came up with. Mm-hmm. And after writing that, I thought, oh, I would like to keep going in this thing. I'd like to keep uh, writing these kinds of, of essays and um, and then as I began writing more they because of my background in, in folklore they kind of took on that, that sort of um, folklore but also sort of um, theme of, of belief what we believe in yeah and it, 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 the collections are marvelous I uh, you know I've talked to authors over the years who, who write these things and and uh, they're often you know pieces that that they, they've done else for for other things and, and then they put together the collection and they they pick Pay, pay close attention to to the, the which essay goes first and what comes after, but but in this case it, the, the 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 almost 
I know they're dissimilar, but um, from one another, but they, they, they almost build onto one another. And I'm I'm reading it almost like a novel. Um, like I couldn't put it down because I I wanted to see what was next. And um, but but there is a, this idea of what we believe in and and the sort. And and I, I wanted to start I guess with with ghosts. Um, you write that first essay. You talk about um, I guess one's. Um, belief in in or whether they believe in ghosts or not especially you know as a kid in the sort uh moving on um into adulthood um i i i've always said that that um i don't believe in ghosts because i i i've, I've never encountered one i mean, that might change if i ever you know see one one day but but um does one have to 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 see one to believe in one i guess that, that's such a good question. You know, I've never considered that. There is, um, I quote one of my old professors in that uh, essay, Diane Goldstein, who says that if you tell uh, a haunting tale or, or, you know, a ghost story, a personal one, at a party, that you'll find that most people will counter with a story of their own. In, in your case, I guess not, but then maybe you have heard stories that other people have told that you could, you could tell as um, sort of a proxy um, personal haunting tale. Um, so yeah, I think I think it has a lot to do with your background and uh, how you're raised as well. That I mean, there's there's just maybe a pragmatism where you know if it, if it can be proved by science, then it it doesn't exist. But there's also religious beliefs where within certain religious doctrines, there are certain ghosts that are sort of um, sanctioned, I guess, yeah. and, and ones that are not, and that are, are taboo uh, to believe in. So there, there's so much that goes into whether or not you're going to believe in, in ghosts. And, and then there's also the idea of, um, of not, not believing. So if in my work um, as a folklorist, if I were to interview somebody about their personal haunting, I couldn't really pass that kind of judgment. I, it is a belief uh, it's a belief like any other belief, um, yeah. and I'd have to value it and um, respect it. And even if I thought, well, I don't think that really happened, or that sounds a little far-fetched, I wouldn't say that. I would, I would have to suspend that kind of judgment and, and just accept that they believe it, and so to them it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers your no, question. No, it, <laughs> it does, because I, I, I guess what I am is agnostic about ghosts. My, my my grandmother used to used to uh, tell us as, as kids that she would get these dreams at night of, of relatives coming to her in in her in her sleep and telling her things, and and uh, telling her to do things because um, um, you know she, she she couldn't find something one day and so a relative said no when you look in this in this part of the house and, and and sure enough the next day she did, and so she she swears she swore that 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 was you know her her. Or dead relative visiting her. We, we, my, my, our, our, where I live, um, when I was a kid, my, uh, I guess the people that had lived here previously, um, one of their uh, grandparents, I guess, had died in the house, and I guess you, you tell your um, when you sell the house to someone else, you have to tell them these things, right? Yes, you have to disclose it. Yeah, <laughs> and so my dad told me as a kid, and this used to freak me out um, that. Uh, <laughs> You know, at night, you know, there may be somebody at night in, in the hall because, you know, they died in that room. And, uh, you know, the ne room next to mine. 
And so as a kid, I, I thought, you know, you know, one day I'm going to encounter them. And, and I never have, you know, 30 years of living in this house, I never have. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, that, that's where the, the sort of skepticism perhaps comes from. That's such a great story because it sort of um, switches the ghost story where you're, you're told that the haunting exists and then it doesn't happen to you. So you, you're sort of that's, saying, well, fine, I don't believe in you then. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in my office here at home and, and um, no one's home at the moment. But, if, you know, if, if something moves, <laughs> I'm probably going to hang up and freak out. So, you know, I, it's there, but it's not there, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, yeah. But so, but that's so interesting, and I like all of these stories. It's really neat, like the, about your grandmother um, and, and her, her encounters. And then and I also like that your dad tried to freak you out. Like, yeah. <laughs> the well. ghost in your house. Obviously, it didn't. It sort of worked. <laughs> it, it sort of worked, but it, I, I think. I, but see, this is another thing that you say in that essay. As children, we believe everything. And then I'm wondering, as as we get older, do we, do, do these things fall away? Well, I I found uh, with with the children's beliefs from the research that I did it that it seems that they they do because yeah. you know you can have those discussions with little children who are saying, well, I own a unicorn, and um, <laughs> you know, and and then there's more sort of generalized. Yeah, Santa, beliefs. the tooth fairy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that. And you know when they're reinforced by adults, then the children believe in them longer. Mm, right. Um, I was once walking home with my daughter and a friend of hers, and I can't remember how old they were. Um, maybe maybe eight or nine, mm-hmm. like just like past the age where you think you might still believe in unicorns. Sure. So I told them a funny story about a woman who thought unicorns were real, and my daughter's friend <laughs> got kind of upset, and and she said, "You just." Are, just because you don't believe in them doesn't make them not real. <laughs> and uh, and she really meant it. Yeah. She really was not. Uh, she wasn't trying to talk back or you uh-huh. know. And she, I just thought that was quite profound for yeah. this kid. And obviously, she did believe in them. And I had ruined something for her at that moment. Yeah. And she wasn't going to let it happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, these stories that we we tell one another, the ones that are passed down, especially. Um, these have always fascinated you, and I would assume that that's why you pursue the scholarship that that you you have. I mean, um, we see that in the book. I mean, you give us examples of stories from other cultures. Um, you relate them to things that happened to you or, or experiences that you might have had, and and I I find that um, when you invoke them as you do in certain parts of the book, I find that fascinating because um, I, I guess. They, they really do mean something, and, and they're, they're um, I guess, transposable. Is, is that the right word? To, to whatever situation we might need them for. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. Those, uh, particularly those oral stories that have been around since forever. I mean, there's a reason that they persisted in the way that they did. Yeah. It's because they are meaningful and because they can be transposed um, onto whatever, you know, cultural situation you happen to be in. So, for example, um, in Newfoundland, where I studied folklore, some of the uh, traditional jack tales, so I think we all know Jack and the Beanstalk, but there are other sure. jack tales where Jack is sort of the underdog, the hero of the story, and he goes through these magical experiences and ultimately comes out on top and gets the 
whatever the success story is. But they came from, um, well, a lot of them came from the west of England. And one scholar, Martin Lovelace, was looking at these stories in Newfoundland, mm-hmm. and they had been transposed onto the Newfoundland cultural landscape. So what had been agrarian-based stories where people were wandering around these fields or, you know, they, they were farming-based, it had become fishing-based, but every once in a while there would be some mention of milking the cow. That was still left over mm. from when where these tales originated from. Um which I always found really interesting because those are just sort of vestiges of of, of what they had been at, at one point before they came over across the ocean with, with the people and and became Newfoundland uh, specific. But I guess I'm just saying that yeah, you they they adapt, they they migrate and then they adapt to their surroundings. It's just like plants, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, 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 there's a you write you write a, a number of essays, a couple of a few essays, I think, where um, you're talking about your pandemic experience, and you, you um, this marvelous term in one of the essays, mythological doom scrolling, where you're <laughs> trying to find meaning in in those moments during the pandemic um, through myths and, and stories and and um that might have been very interesting for you i don't know about the people around you did they did they they find that reassuring say <laughs> well i <laughs> probably i shared this with my husband and he rolled his eyes maybe but um, <laughs> i think i also you know i was doing the same kind of doom scrolling yeah uh that everyone else was engaging in yeah. and mm-hmm. it really was not giving me the answers i needed i just it was, and then I remembered that uh, I, well, I didn't, I had an idea. I was like, I'm pretty sure there are specific plague legends um, that I, I studied, or at least like I felt there would be a category. And then I had some books and papers, and I was able to just pull them up and look. And the plague legends are really grim. You know, they're yeah. <laughs> um, sacrificing small children by burying them alive to help ward off the plague, or. Uh, <laughs> scary stories like that and yeah at the same time the fact that these legends persisted it just tells us that so did humanity so you know people went through this terrible thing and then they told really frightening stories about it that were supernatural in nature but grounded in the truth and those stories persisted and we still have them today when we go looking for them and there was something really comforting in that it made me feel less alone um and, and sort of more connected to the world in terms of its timeline and, and what we were living through. Yeah. It, it, it um, made me think, because, I mean, we've lived through the pandemic for nearly three years. Um, it made me think of, of those early days, as, as you, you write about them in, in, in the essays that appear in this book, about um, all the things that, that we were worried about that we, we swore were going to be, you know, that the uh, and then what we know subsequent you know it's fascinating to see the change sort of if you will and yeah that it, it is interesting it's, i didn't um i didn't have to go back and try to remember because i actually during that period for whatever reason i was recording everything i think it's mm. that i i i was teaching but then i uh, like wasn't working out <laughs> my kids were home right <laughs> um and i was doing the, the copy edit, I think, or maybe finalizing the edits on my last book during that period. Mm-hmm. But then after that, I was like, well, I can't really look for new work right now, so I'm just going to 
I'm just going to record what's happening. <laughs> so luckily, I, I was able to um, use that in, in this essay, and because I don't know that I could, I don't know if I could unlearn everything that I've lived through now, three years later. Yeah, I think I think that's the case for a lot of people. I think we carry a lot of the things that, oh, I don't know, it says scare that, that we're fearful of, still, for for yeah. good or ill. Yeah. Um, and and um, I want to get to the, the the part of the book where um, you, you talk about your relationship with law and order, and 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 that's a very small part of that essay because it's a very, it's a very personal essay that you write there, and um, you talk about um, being in Kiev, or Kiev, pardon me, and and um, being attacked there, and then there's there's a subsequent essay on on becoming pregnant, and and um, this sounds terrible for me to say, but I kept thinking as I was reading that part of the book, and not just that part of the book, but, but, but other parts as well, that the, the, there's a lot of things that, that I as a guy don't have to deal with that women deal with. And, um, you know, I thought for, for a second there was this reading that, that um, this is great. I, I get to learn about these things that, that I'll never have to, say, encounter or, or have to, to deal with. Um, but at the same time, you know, and I felt better for, for for having read the book. But at the same time, that doesn't mean anything to anybody else other than me, right? <laughs> and and I yeah. guess the, the question that I have is is um, well, I don't know if I have a question. I I, I just well, I wanted to tell you that that um, I'm sure that uh, you know I don't I don't you know this is not this is not a, a, a brainstorm or anything like that, 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 that women find it harder to, to navigate through life. Well, I, I think that's, that's true. I think women um, do have a harder time navigating through life, and, and, you know, for all sorts of reasons, um, you know, in particular women of color or trans women or, you know, any vulnerable uh, person has a harder time navigating through life. Um, and I wrote about SVU in particular, Special Victims Unit, uh-huh. the Law and Order franchise. Um, one, that's their, their show that's specifically about heinous crimes committed against women or sometimes children and other vulnerable uh-huh. groups. Yeah. And it is, I, I'm not the only person that I, I had, there are, um, I had come across two other essays on this, on on the, how, why women enjoy watching SVU in particular. They, mm. Their audience uh, is, is largely female, um, and it's such a successful show. Yeah. I think I think it's like a like a rehearsal. I mean, there's something. First of all, the the um, main detective is very uh, sympathetic. Uh, she's a she's a for empathetic character and. Yeah. Um, and and there is the satisfaction in seeing this terrible thing happen, but you but the story wraps up at the end. And so first of all, you can see like, okay, so if I you know walk down a dark alley at night, this can happen to me. So I'm going to avoid doing that. But there's lessons in it. Yeah, yeah. But also um, there's that satisfaction at the at the end of the show, um, which is probably the satisfaction of all of those kind of detective yeah. <laughs> um, court case shows where. Where the story wraps up, like it kind of, you can feel satisfied by the ending, which is really um, unusual for for yeah. cases of violence against women. Yeah, and you... I'm not saying that all SVU 
you know, episodes. Sure. Sometimes they don't wrap up, but but they're but they they always have to come to some kind of ending, some end note that leaves you satisfied. And 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 realize that it's just so not the case. So th- there's all sorts of reasons why SVU is satisfying, and then it also it really mirrors some of the uh, early folk tales, which are often feature violence against women. Yeah, you you write um, about watching uh, a show like SVU. Um, where you talk about the process, I guess that's why they're called procedurals because um, they, you know, stuff happens and then it's resolved at the end of uh, forty-two minutes or whatever, forty-four minutes. Um, you say that, um, and I found this. This is why we like television, I guess. Is is uh, it gives us something aspirational that that um, the sense of process is something to strive for. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh well, that can't happen. That looks that that's okay. You know, this terrible thing happened. Okay, we are through it. Yeah. And now, what are we going to do about it? And so that that, I guess, that feeling of action is also kind of satisfying. But there's an act. Somebody's acting on this terrible crime, yeah. and and doing something about it. R- writing about yourself and experiences that you had. It, it, um, it, it's um, because it, there are personal things in the in the book. Did you find that easy? That so I I find it not easy exactly. I don't find that it is a difficult. Like I, I when I sit down to write, uh, it does come naturally to write from a place of of the personal, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes it is hard. Sometimes if I'm going over something that really was quite difficult or tragic um, in my life and then writing about it again it can be emotional for sure but it does come naturally but what the hardest part I find is putting it out into the world (laughs) so right now we're just about to be public I begin to panic I really feel like I I really try my best um, to write from a place of of um I guess good intention sounds a bit, I don't know, a bit silly, but I, I, like a place of love, I guess. Like I don't, I don't ever want to try to write uh, as a means of uh, retribution or, you know, in anger towards someone, getting back at someone, that sort of thing. Because when you write the personal, you just can't help it. You have to involve the people in your life because that's your story. They're part of your story. Yeah. And so I don't ever want to. Um, create something that will be really upsetting for anybody that I love. And then yet at the same time, I still want to be able to tell the stories the way I, the way I want to tell them without um, having too much censorship coming in from, from the people in my life. So, so the actual act of writing itself, I don't find difficult writing from a really personal place. Um, But, but the sort of, I guess, um, all the stuff around it, yeah. moral questions, and um, yeah, so that's the part that, that I, I actually do find very hard. And then I think, oh my gosh, I just need I need to start writing fiction. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think that's the answer because yeah. <laughs> I think people just think you're writing about yourself anyhow. <laughs> yeah. So so if you are panicked at this moment, just to, just on the cusp of a book being published. Um, do you regret some of the things that, that, or do you end up regretting some of the things that you write about, say? I, so far that hasn't happened. Um, I mean, in this moment where, and kind of, pe- not that many people have read the book yet, I guess sometimes what you find is 
people will react to something you never expected them to. And I don't have a great example of that, but it has happened where it's this tiny throwaway line that you didn't even think about, and it, that's the part that upsets someone. So I guess I, <laughs> I'm waiting for that. So I don't know. I don't, I don't have any regrets. So I really do. I, I feel quite confident that I did write from a place of love when I wrote about the people in, in my life. So um, I just have to hope they also see it. <laughs> Speaking of, of uh, lines in books that, that had me thinking, um, you write about your brother's death in, in uh, 2001. Um, I'll ask you about that in just a sec, but there, there's one line there that I, I found fascinating. Um, I guess when, when they were um, settling his estate, uh, you declined a portion of the estate. You, 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 I guess you, your family found out that, that he had um, a, a lot of money, say, socked away. Um, not because you're virtuous, you write in the book, but because you're superstitious. Yes. And, and I found that interesting. Um, yes. It, and it, he didn't have, he just had, you know, he actually had certainly, um, like, saved fiscally in a way that I hadn't in my early 30s. Uh-huh. Um, so there wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough that it could have certainly made a difference to my life as a 24-year-old for um, an amount of time. Um, but yes, no, I am. I, I think, I think I couldn't imagine what I might spend it on that could be valuable or meaningful in some way and not turn out to be, uh, sort of an albatross. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. you know, where, where whatever it was, was never going to replace what was lost. And so it would just come to So, so that was 21 years ago. That, that's what you felt. Let, let's say someone comes up to you today and says, "Oh, he um, he has this stake in something, and it's matured, if you will, and, and there's there's this sum of money that, that you're entitled to." Would you, do you feel the same way now? I mean, and I ask that because it, it's a marvelous essay about your brother and your relationship with him, and then it talks about this this journey of say 20 years. Uh, after his death and and um the grief that you go through and it 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 um i don't want to give anything away but but it 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 um it comes to a conclusion if you will that that i think um the reader will find satisfying um do you think your your attitudes has cha- have changed in the 20 years since but that's such an interesting question. I have, yeah, certainly, um, grief is interesting in that it, it sounds like something you go through and then it goes away, but it doesn't really work that way. No. It just kind of mutates and changes. And, um, but it, it does, it is, there is a stage of it where it is acute and then it becomes more chronic, I guess, but more background and, and you do come to accept aspects. Of, of losing someone. In particular, my brother was young. It was a tragedy, really. And mm-hmm. so it was very difficult um, not to focus on in life. But I did, I have certainly come to to celebrate more of, of who he was rather than, you know, the way he died and, and, and his death 
in, in general. And so I think, you know, someone came knocking, oh, it turns out there's this uh, windfall. Yeah. I think it would change things. And I actually, my first thought when you said that, it, it would change things because I have children now, and I think mm. I could do something nice for them. Yeah. And it would come from my brother, and that would be really special. Um, so I think that... <laughs> So obviously, yeah, I, I absolutely um, have, have changed in terms of how, how I would feel about about that and then also how I feel about um, the grief and the death. Yeah, yeah, and and I'll get into it just a sec. But the the, um, the idea, though, that that uh, 21 years ago you thought you you, you didn't accept it because of, of say superstition. I thought uh, that's a, a, a totally um, natural reaction, I would think. I, I think so. I was, yeah. yeah, you just, who knows? The reactions are all so, you just never know how you're going to react to anything once mm-hmm. you're hit with a, with a, with a sudden death like that, that you're processing and, and how you feel about things. And, yeah. yeah. And I, that in particular, I didn't know until I read it. And I've, I've lived with the name Joseph for 40 years. Um, I didn't know what that meant. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I I learned um, through through uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> through learning my brother's name. <laughs> yeah. um, the the um, in terms of of this journey of grief that that you you um, went on the, the twenty years since his death, it, it's such a useful way to look at grief and and the feelings that that one goes through uh, when they lose somebody. And you you alluded to uh, this earlier. Um, that you kept seeing him um, in your daily life. You'd, you'd be, in, you'd say, walking somewhere, and 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 sort of glimpses of him would come to you. Um, and it, it's such a fascinating thing to think about, especially it was September two thousand and one, and we all know what what else happened that month. Um, the thing that I kept wondering, Emily, as I was reading the book, was you know how. Um, uh, Every time it's September 11th, people talk about um, what happened that day. Um, do the events of, of, of that day and, and sort of the, 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 the grief that, 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 that everyone talks about, say, worldwide, does that intertwine with, with what happened in your family? Yes, absolutely. It is, it is definitely tied all together um, in that that one period of time and so I don't really see um, any any images or you know you get the 20 year anniversary of when 9-11 happened I know that means it's the 20 year anniversary of my brother's death Mm. and it was interesting because I actually had an internship um, at the CBC in New York City and it was in fall 2011, um, it was with a reporter, Mimi Tompkins, and um, she worked for radio and TV and did freelance gigs, and she organized it so that I could just basically follow her around, be her assistant. Uh-huh. Um, this was organized before the events of 9-11, and then um, that happened, and then my brother died, and then I was still sort of scheduled to go was probably five weeks after yeah. um, 9-11, and everyone 
suggested that perhaps I should just stay home because of all the various circumstances, including the fact that New York was still basically on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there were all those anthrax scares. Like, it was just a really, really difficult time and a difficult time in my family. But my grandmother, who I can't remember, you know, she would have been in her late 80s at the time, she just said, oh, no, you just have to go. Just go. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I did. And it was actually the best place for me because everybody in that city was grieving. Mm. Everybody in that city was crying spontaneously on the street. I walked through a fireman's funeral almost every day on my way to work. And it was totally fine for me suddenly where I've been a student at journalism, in journalism at Ryerson. And it was it just wasn't it wasn't going to work out for me to just turn to one of my classmates and just start talking about what was happening in my life. And yet in New York, I could be at a bar and turn to the person next to me and say, like, hey, my brother just died. And they were all, everyone was open to hearing that and talking about it in that place. So in a way, even though it was a city in, in mourning and I was in mourning, it was the perfect place to be. <laughs> so, so, yeah, those, those events are certainly connected in, in more ways than one. <laughs> I could um, talk all um, day with you about this this book because there's so many fascinating uh, stories, obviously that, that that you invoke and that you tell us about about yourself and in in your life, your family, um, your dad, uh, your mom. Um, uh, but but I'll let you go because it, it it's um, for people listening to this, it'll spoil the enjoyment that they'll get when they pick up the collection. Um, I so appreciate your time today and and um, uh, congratulations and good luck with the book, Emily. Thank you so much, Joe. I always love talking to you about books. (laughs) The website for more is at emilyurquhart.com. The book is called Ordinary Wonder Tales. It's published by Biblioasis. Its author, Emily Urquhart, joined me on the line from uh, Kitchener, Ontario, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.